Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of a Daisy Woman podcast. I'm your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today we are so honored to be joined by U.S. Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. Congressman Krishnamurthy represents the 8th District of Illinois, which includes Chicago's west and northwest suburbs. He serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus, the Committee on Oversight and Reform, and as chairman of its Subcommittee on Economic and Consumer Policy, vice chair of the LGBTQ Plus Equality Caucus, co-chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus Immigration Task Force, and as an assistant whip for the Democratic Caucus. In 2019, Congressman Krishnamurthy became the first South Asian ever to be appointed as a member of a Congressional Committee on Intelligence. The same year, he was also named as chairman of the House Oversight Committee's Subcommittee on Economic and Consumer Policy, making him the first ever member of South Asian descent to chair a congressional committee or subcommittee. Raja previously served in Illinois state government on the board of the Illinois Housing Development Authority as a special assistant attorney general in the office's anti-corruption unit and as Deputy State Treasurer before becoming President of Small Technology Businesses in the Chicago area. Roger earned a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Princeton University and received his Juris Doctorate from Harvard Law School. Congressman Krishnamurthy, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Sonia. Well, it is such a distinct honor to have you join us today, and especially amidst your busy schedule, given the domestic and global events, including the ongoing pandemic and, of course, recent events in Afghanistan, which I will be getting to. But wow, we are so delighted to welcome you. So I want to start off by acknowledging that you really are an inspiration to so many of us from our diaspora, both in North America and globally. And as part of the Samosa Caucus, a phrase you originated, which I love, by the way, I want to ask how your immigrant journey, born in New Delhi, India in 1973, and then moving to Buffalo, New York, so your father could attend graduate school before moving to Peoria, Illinois in 1980, whereby your father became a professor. How has all of this informed and impacted you as a politician and and as a human being? Well, you know, my personal story is probably not unlike a lot of others, but in my case, it has really motivated what I ended up pursuing and doing even today. You know, I we went through a lot of uh, personal financial struggles. And for a time, I was in public housing and food stamps with my family in my early childhood after, you know, a recession of 1973. But, you know, after that, uh, things really changed for the better. And, you know, I was able to get into a position where uh, really our family lived the American dream. And so now I'm just trying to pay it forward every day. 
Well, that is so inspiring. And we often refer to the concept of the quote model minority myth on this show with many of my guests from the South Asian diaspora, whether it pertains to education or socioeconomics and the unique pressures it places upon our community. And while you certainly seem to check all the boxes, your academic and career credentials are deeply impressive as you earned your mechanical engineering degree from Princeton and went on to earn a law degree from Harvard. And yet, as you stated, on the other hand, you're quite candid in sharing that when you were a child, food stamps helped your parents work their way out of a difficult time. And this is not a story we typically hear from our diaspora. So, so grateful you shared this as it certainly removes stigma around this, but also I would imagine it impacts you greatly in the work you currently do. And especially given the hardships many Americans are facing as a result of the pandemic. So if you could speak to that a bit more, and I think, you know, if we're looking at it from the perspective of criticism around public assistance, you're a perfect example of somebody that used it and is now the embodiment of the American dream. So yeah, any thoughts on that? Well, I think that what that experience taught me, two things. One, you know, everybody has a chance to fall down, so to speak. And the question is whether society is going to be there to help lift them up and get them back on their feet so that they can, you know, continue on their journey to their American dream, so to speak. And then the second is I deeply believe in the, the concept of, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. And I think that our society, you know, basically we, we want to design a, a society and laws and programs that could, you know, help the least of us and any of us who might get afflicted by some kind of malady or sickness or, you know, an economic problem. And, you know, if we do that, we're all better off for it because we're all able to kind of get up and move forward and not have something, you know, just very crippling, preventing us from, you know, doing anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do want to move on to the news around Afghanistan and the United States ongoing efforts to evacuate U.S. citizens and Afghan allies from the country. And I know you're a member of the Intelligence Committee and you have been very direct in your criticism of the chaotic nature of the U.S.'s withdrawal from Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. the rapid fall of the country, the Taliban, and perhaps even what you've described in other interviews as An intelligence failure. I know you and leadership are laser focused upon getting folks out and and streamlining the special visa process. Any updates you can provide? I know it's a a very fluid situation. I think the one update is it looks like we are evacuating a lot more people faster from Afghanistan than we did in previous days, which is a good thing. I think the challenging factor is we said that we would be out of the country by August 31st. And as a practical matter, that deadline is basically upon us. And yet we know that there are a lot of people we still need to get out of the country. So that is a real ongoing challenge. How do we do that? How do we, you know, avoid getting dragged into another skirmish inadvertently, even as we're trying to evacuate people as well as our Afghan allies and partners. Well, no, that's a wholly understandable. Absolutely. And I do want to ask, I, I recently did an interview with Dr. Anuradha Chinoy, who is a professor from New Delhi, India, with deep knowledge of the region. I do want 
to ask, has your background as an Indian American helped to inform you about the volatile nature and the many factions at play in this region? I think I was educated, I mean, broadly based on speaking to her. But, you know, India is right there, right nearby and directly being impacted by all the volatility in the region and the... um, the gain in power again of the Taliban. And so I do want to ask, you know, has that informed you a bit more, perhaps, than other colleagues that aren't from the global south? Perhaps it has to the extent that I just know that, you know, a lot of people of Indian origin care about what's happening in Afghanistan because, you know, there are factions within Afghanistan who want to do harm in India. Al-Qaeda, in particular, in the past, has had its designs on India. And unfortunately, the Taliban has kind of facilitated their being in Afghanistan and using that as a base of operations. So I think that uh, as an Indian American, I'm concerned from that standpoint with regard to India. But really, as an Indian American, I'm also just concerned about all the people, our Afghan allies and partners, who are seeking to leave the country and who are in a desperate situation. You know, as an immigrant myself, I want to welcome them. I want to make sure we get them out of the country. And I predict that they will be among our finest Americans. And anybody who would turn them away because they are, quote unquote, the other, they are, you know, some people, you know, paint them with all kinds of pejoratives from the far right. I think that's just completely unacceptable. So as an immigrant, as a, as a person who's a first-generation American, I'm deeply concerned about their plight and want to welcome them here. Well, I agree with you on that front. And what was also interesting is, as it pertains to women and girls in the region, I think Dr. Chinoy offered that we really can't use the same yardstick for how we perceive women's rights in in that region. And I do know the UN and, and of course, yourself and all of your colleagues across party lines are concerned about the plight of women and girls in the region. Any comments in regards to that? I think the Taliban has made it very clear that they view women and girls as second-class citizens. That's how they treated them with utter brutality during the time that they ruled Afghanistan in the 1990s. I'm hoping that this time around, the Taliban, which does seek some international recognition, which does seek international aid, will change their stance somewhat, though I have to be realistic that I don't think that they will fundamentally change their character. And so we have to, you know, make sure that we shine a light on everything that's happening there There is a robust media that has developed in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, and we want to make sure that they have the ability to also be our eyes and ears in the country with regard to these issues and hold them accountable to any conventions or treaties or agreements that the government of Afghanistan in the past signed with regard to women and girls. And, you know, we have to be vigilant here. No doubt about that. And yes, they become very media savvy, which is something that uh, was certainly not indicative of their faction previously. And I do want to pivot a bit. I know that you've been a huge advocate of 
global vaccine equity, and particularly as it pertains to India, which of course was devastated by the second wave of the virus and its variant, and hoping and praying none of your family was affected by that. But the United States has so far allocated only about seven and a half million doses of COVID vaccines to India. And you flatly stated that is simply not enough. Are you still advocating for an increase on this front with the administration? And I do know that you've got the support of 116 members of the Congress in this ongoing effort to expand U.S. global vaccine aid programs, not only to India, but other nations. So want to hear your comments about that. So my advocacy on this front really started back in the April-May timeframe. And unfortunately, my family ended up losing three of our extended relatives to the Delta variant in India. And so it became kind of clear to me that you know, unless the United States steps up and assists countries like India and others in vaccinating their populations, not only will those people be seriously affected, but so will we. So this is the right thing to do to help others, and it's a smart thing to do to protect ourselves from variants that could defeat our vaccines. I think that 7.5 million doses allocated to India is, is a paltry amount, and I think that we need to step up and, you know, set up a program to vaccinate 60% of the population of the world's 92 poorest countries. This is what outside advocates and experts have told us. And that's what's in my legislation called the NOVID Act, which is a play on words, no more COVID. And I'm trying to get it through the budget reconciliation process now. And I'm hopeful that we can make progress there. Oh, that's so incredibly important because, yes, if we don't eradicate this and pursue global vaccination, we're continually going to be bombarded. Not we'll always have the variants to some degree, but as you stated, it just puts us in a no-win situation. And it sort of pertains to the globalism that we referred to before. We do not, isolationism is certainly not something we can live with anymore in this day and age. And another topic that is especially close to your heart pertains to the green card backlog. And it basically, it, as you've stated, it is imperative that immigration packages include provisions to address the employment-based green card backlog, which is really damaging American competitiveness and abandoning 1.2 million people to perpetual non-immigrant status. I have done interviews with various organizations that support largely those from South Asia who are here on these types of visas and or rather green cards. It is heartbreaking to hear the stories and the type of life that they endure. They are in this country, but wow, it is such a volatile existence. And so I would like to hear more from you about that. Well, this is a very, very pressing problem for especially Indian nationals, but also Chinese nationals who happen to be here on H-1B visas. Those are employment-based visas, usually for high-skilled areas, usually in the information technology space. And there is a cap right now that basically prevents any country, any country's nationals from getting more than 7% of that year's green card allocation allocated to that country's nationals. And so the bottom line is that there are 1.2 million people in line right now for green cards, again, mainly from places like India who have been waiting for maybe 12, 13, 14, 15 years 
and may have to wait for that much longer to get a green card. If a new person were to come here on an H-1B visa and then apply for a green card, it's estimated that it might take 80 years, that's eight zero years for them to get a green card. And of course, they'll probably die before they get a green card. And that's just, not only is it wrong in terms of how we treat people who aspire and who you know, really have the qualifications to be excellent citizens of our country or green card holders, but it's also hurting our economy because these people don't start businesses, they don't employ Americans, they don't buy homes, they don't buy cars, they don't do all the things that could really power our economy forward because they're living in limbo. So I've put forward, again, a proposal to deal with them, to remove the per country cap and basically address this backlog because it's not only, again, the right thing to do, but it's the smart thing to do from our economic standpoint as we come out of this pandemic and really try to stage an economic recovery. Well, I completely agree with you on that. And in pulling directly from your site, I think one of the things that I find so inspiring is that you consistently try to reach across the aisle in order to find common sense, bipartisan solutions that can end Washington gridlock. And I would comment that perhaps the new administration has certainly made that easier. It was a very contentious time in our country with the previous administration, no doubt about that. I'd like to hear your comments on that and sort of how the climate has shifted. But in particular, two areas that have historically been bipartisan are infrastructure and small business. And I was so delighted to hear that you're such a supporter of small business. And I think it's a backbone of this country and many from our diaspora are are small business owners. However, many may still be feeling the effects of the 2008 financial crisis, as you point out. So I would like to hear more. And you also know Chicago area small businesses. You were the former deputy Illinois treasurer. So you have a very unique perspective on how government can help or hinder small business growth and development. I would really like to hear more from you on this. There is a perception that Democrats aren't armed with this knowledge or this acute understanding. And that couldn't be further from the truth as it pertains to yourself. That's right. I joke that I signed the front of the check, the back of the check. I turned on the alarm. I disarmed the alarm system in the morning when I was running a small business for about seven years in the Chicago area. And it's really hard to, to be a small business person. I mean, to make a monthly payroll, especially in tough economic times, is not a joke. And sometimes we pay lip service to it in Washington, and we have to take it more seriously. So that's what I've tried to do, especially during the pandemic. My office was central in helping to author provisions of the PPP loans, the payroll protection program loans, which I think really saved millions and millions of businesses at this point. And so I'm proud of that effort, but we need to do more. And I'm committed to doing that. Wow. Well, we are already at the end of our time together. United States Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, such an inspiration, not only to myself, but so many from our diaspora and across the nation. We truly can't thank you enough for joining us today. And please keep doing the hard work. We're all watching. Hey, thank you so much, Sonia, and keep up your efforts. And thank you for doing what you're doing. It helps a lot of people and look forward to keeping in touch. Oh, definitely. Such an honor. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a great day.